We are continuing through our study. We've been in now for several months in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And in this particular portion, which, Lord willing, we will conclude this portion of the text this morning, in which Paul is addressing the uh, unique Christ and showing us how that he is unique in every way. And we see that demonstrated throughout this text, and so there's some emphasis that Paul makes concerning drawing out this truth. And obviously, this is not an exhaustive list of how Jesus is unique, nor is each thing Paul lists an exhaustive explanation of how he's unique in this area. But yet, Paul does give us a summarization, if you will, of the uniqueness of Christ. And he does so, let me remind you before we even read this morning, he does so in light of, or in regard to, the fact that we who are disqualified by Adam due to our inherent sinful nature and also unqualified ourselves due to our own actual sins, that the qualifier had to be qualified to qualify us. And so in order to qualify us, to make us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, as Paul says in verse 12, in order for that to be the case, Paul explains that Jesus had to be unique, and he is unique. It took one who is unique. And so that's what we've been looking at over the past several weeks as I have been here. Of course, last week I was absent, as you are aware. Uh, Again, I want to say I appreciate Brother Stephen um, and Brother Roberto as well filling in uh, during my absence, and so I'm grateful for that. But uh, this week we will pick up where we left off from a few weeks back. So look with me in Colossians 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, of course, speaking verse 14, he says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse uh, 15, who, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity you've provided us to gather with the body of Christ this day. We thank you for every soul that you have providentially brought to this place, Lord. We know that this is not by accident or coincidence, but Lord, that you have allowed and providentially brought us to gather here this day. And we are thankful for that, Lord. And we pray that as we do so, may we edify one another in truth and in your love. And Lord, may we be uh, submissive to your spirit as you would work in in us and through us to minister to other believers, Lord, uh, within this congregation. And Father, we pray that in all things, may Christ be exalted, may your name be glorified, and Father, may we be aware that you truly have provided for us, Father, in the Lord Jesus, he who is unique, who is different than all others, able to do that which none other could do because of who he is. And we rejoice in that this morning. So may we be mindful of this. Lord, you know our hearts and our requests, the burdens on our hearts, even this day we do pray, Father, that you might be merciful and gracious concerning of course, Annie and the baby and Garrett, and Lord as well, for those who are in need here otherwise, 
Uh, we thank you, Lord, for bringing back those who've been away for Brother Richard. We are grateful to see him again this morning. We thank you, Lord, for answered prayer. And we just thank you, Lord, that we can meet as we do and that there is a desire and a joy in the fellowship of your people as we would gather together. So, Lord, may we have a hunger for your word and may your spirit use it to continue to conform us to the image of your dear son that he truly will have preeminence in all things, that we acknowledge that preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will we pray this in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you and be seated. Weeks ago, uh, we began examining, as I've mentioned, how Jesus had to be unique. If he were to make us meet, as Paul states in verse 12, he, 12, he hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And while we know that Jesus is unique in every way, meaning again that there is no other to whom he can be compared, within this passage, as Paul emphasizes the preeminence of Jesus, which we've read this morning, he also provides some detail as to how Jesus is unique. And I mentioned and prefaced a moment ago that this is not an all-exhaustive list of the uniqueness of Jesus, nor is every detail given the extent of even that detail of how he is unique in that manner. But yet, he does give us a glimpse. He gives us an overview, if you will, of how Jesus is unique. And I reminded you, I'll remind you again this morning, the definition for the adjective unique is existing as the only one or as the sole example single, solitary, and type of or characteristics. Also, having no like or equal, unparalleled, incomparable, unable to be compared with any other. Paul began his explanation of how Jesus is unique, unparalleled and incomparable and unequaled, by first declaring, which is of, all, of great importance that he did so in this fashion, that first, Jesus Christ is unique in his being. Verse 15, he says, Who, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Jesus came to not only do the will of the Heavenly Father, but he was manifested in the flesh as the only way to the Heavenly Father. For it is through Jesus Christ that Scripture clearly teaches us, and it's through Christ alone that we have been provided the means of both a relationship and fellowship with God as our Heavenly Father. If you are not in Jesus Christ, if you do not know Jesus Christ, then you have no relationship to God at all apart from him being your creator and he who will be your judge. But apart from Jesus, that's the only way you will ever know him. But in Christ, we've been provided the privilege of knowing God as our heavenly father, as the one who provided the Lord Jesus on our behalf. Second, Jesus Christ is unique in his authority. In verse 16 we read, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus Christ is unique, obviously, in his authority, for not only is he the creator of all that is, and all things that are can only be because he sustains them, his authority is the only authority that is eternal. While kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. In Revelation eleven fifteen, we read, and all this is again reviewed from weeks past, bringing us to the text this morning. In Revelation eleven fifteen, we read, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Third, Jesus Christ is unique in his status. We saw last time we gathered from verses 17 through 19. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. 
and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Let me remind you of something here as we've read this. I think this is often misread or misrepresented. Whenever Paul writes and said, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, first of all, notice verse 17 again, he, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things consist. All things continue because he's the one who holds it all together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul is not saying here, oh, he rose from the dead so that we should recognize he is preeminent or we can give him preeminence. No, this is a definitive statement, a declaration that is being made. It's saying God worked through his son in this fashion that among men he now holds preeminence among all men and all things that were ever manifested in the flesh because God has worked redemption through him in this fashion and given him a name which is above every name, as the scripture says. So this is something that, yes, we are to acknowledge that Jesus is preeminent, but whether you acknowledge him to be preeminent or not, he is preeminent. And that's the point. Paul is making a definitive statement here. It's not about you should acknowledge him, oh, so now he can't have preeminence if you allow him. No, he is preeminent, and that's what Paul is stating here. Now, although Paul did not use the term, he declares in these two verses, or these three verses, 17 through 19, that Jesus is truly unique in his status. The noun status means standing, rank, or level. As I previously declared regarding the uniqueness of Jesus in his person, or being, the person of Jesus is eternal. And it is this truth that Paul reiterates first in this portion of the epistle. Look at verse 17, the first portion of it. Jesus holds an eternal status. He says, and he, Jesus, is before all things. So Jesus Christ, as I've mentioned two weeks back, he is not a created being. He is eternal, even though many falsely claim, and again, cults exist upon the false premise that he is a created being. This is just not the case. He was manifested in the flesh, but he's always been with the Father. And you talk, let me, let me share this with you, because you if you want to talk about or discuss the matter of Jesus being able to relate to us as he came in the flesh, be reminded of this truth. Prior to his, him being manifested in the flesh, prior to his incarnation, Jesus was not in a glorified body. But then he came in the flesh, manifested in the flesh, died, rose again victorious in a glorified body, and now is forever in a glorified body with the Father. You know what that's saying? He has chosen, God has determined it to be, that Christ will forever be able to relate to us. He is in a glorified flesh. Now, we're not in a glorified flesh, but guess what? One day we shall be. And when that day comes, then we shall be as he is in that glorified flesh. But he forever relates to us as the one who was manifested in the flesh, but he was not created. John eight 58, we're told, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. John 17, 4 through 5, I have glorified thee on the earth, Jesus said. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. By the way, John 17 is truly the Lord's Prayer. Often Matthew 6 and such is referred to that. It's not. That's the model prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives an example of how they are to pray. And, and the contents within that prayer are significant in how we should pray. Not mimicking the prayer, but that which he prayed. But here in John 17, you have the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he is actually praying to the Father. 
And he says here, I've glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. We also see Jesus holds a sovereign or a supreme status. Verse 17, it goes on to say, and by him, by Jesus, all things consist. Everything that is only is because Jesus is. And because Jesus is Lord, he is supreme, he is sovereign, he is king of kings, he is Lord of lords, therefore all that is, is. The verb consist simply means held together. Hebrews 1, 3, we read, who, Jesus, being the brightness of his, the Father's glory, and the express image of his, the Father's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And then Jesus also holds a preeminent status, verses 18 and 19, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The noun preeminent or preeminence means to become, to take place, or to be first. Again, Jesus Christ is first as declared by God the Father. Please hear me. I kind of alluded to this a moment ago somewhat. But we must recognize that Jesus Christ is first because God has declared him to be first. And so this is not a man-made or man-given position, but one which the Father, God the Father, has given to God the Son. So it's not that we make him preeminent. We are to acknowledge his preeminence. But again, I say to you, whether you acknowledge Jesus to be first, whether you acknowledge Jesus to be preeminent or not, does not dictate who he is and who the Father has declared him to be. I've said many times, I once again will say before we get into our text this morning, that Jesus, one does not make Jesus Lord, one does not make him first, one does not make him preeminent, and one does not make him king or make him savior, any more so than one makes him creator. He is creator, he is Lord, he is savior, he is preeminent, and whether you acknowledge that or not does not change the fact that he is. In fact, this is so much so a God-given position. God the Father has given the Son this position that as I referenced a moment ago, let us never forget what Paul tells us in Philippians. That at the name of Jesus, the authority and power of Jesus, every knee should bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, men may reject that truth today, but it doesn't change the fact that he is. And one day, every person who has ever lived will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is who God declared him to be. Absolutely going to be the case. So this morning we conclude this portion, as I mentioned, of Paul's overview of the unique Christ by looking at how Jesus is unique in his purpose. The mission to which the Father sent Jesus is one which he alone could accomplish. Paul wrote that Jesus Christ is unique in his purpose in verses 20 through 22. Let's read them. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled 
in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It is interesting and noteworthy that the truth in Paul's description, which the previous verses recount, we see recounted how Jesus is unique, that these truths are essential in relation to the mission of Jesus. In other words, let me say it to you like this. Were Jesus not unique in his being, in his person? And again, that's foundational. Paul began speaking of the uniqueness of Christ, not on what he's done or what he's accomplished or how he did it, but he begins with the truth of who he is. He is unique in his very person. He is the express image of God. Hebrews 1 tells us he is the, in, the image of the indivisible God. He is the manner in which God the Father has chosen to relate to man, to manifest himself to man. He who is invisible, who cannot be seen, has chosen to make himself visible in his Son. So this is the only connection that we have to God through Jesus Christ. Remember, we're told by Paul that there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Not, not the Lord Christ Jesus. Or listen to this. Notice the terminology used here. The man. Why would he say man? Because it required that he become a man to mediate for us. This is of great significance. So if Jesus is not unique in his being or person, if he is not unique in his authority or his power, if he is not unique in his status or his position, then he would not be qualified himself to qualify us, which was the mission. So the mission is that he hath made us meet, he hath qualified us to become partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Again, Colossians 1 verse 12. So if that was what Christ accomplished, and it is, then we see if all these truths were not accurate about who Jesus is in that he is unique in every manner in which Paul states, then he could not do what he has done. He could not have fulfilled and completed the mission to which he was sent. Look at verses 12 and 13 again with me. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, qualified us, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath Jesus hath delivered us from the power of darkness, or God the Father translated, delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul further explained, it was by Jesus that God the Father accomplished this purpose. The next verse explains that. In whom, verse 14, we have redemption through his blood, the blood of Jesus, even the forgiveness of sins. Now again, the mention of his blood, do not think of this as something mystical. When Jesus died, he was beaten prior to his death, was he not? What happened to the blood? It fell to the ground and was soaked into the ground. When he hung on the cross and he bled and they pierced his side, you remember what happened? His blood ran down and fell into the ground. When it speaks of the blood, it's referring synonymously to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His physical suffering, his physical shedding of blood, his physical death. Now, did he have to shed blood for the remission of sins? Was it necessary that his blood flow? Of course it was. We see that represented throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but we all, which was a shadow of this, true. 
But yet we also know that Jesus bled prior to his death, and we were, no one was saved by that bleeding. When he suffered prior to his actual dying, when they beat him and whipped him, that was not salvation in that moment. It was through his death, after he died, was buried, he rose again, that this is the salvation, the redemption that we, experiencing, that we are experiencing through the provision of God the Father and Jesus Christ. So when it speaks of his blood... We have redemption through his blood. This again is saying that through his sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death, through the shedding of blood, that now we are forgiven. So to what purpose is it that Jesus was called? I'm saying to you, he had a unique purpose. He was unique in his purpose. So the questions to be asked would be simply, to what purpose was Jesus called? Furthermore, what made this purpose unique or incomparable to any other? And Paul answers these questions within verses 20 through 22 of our text this morning. Look again at verse 20. The first part of the verse says, And, this is God the Father, having made peace through the blood of his, Jesus' cross. So Jesus was sent by the Father, being manifested in the flesh, for the sole purpose that he might die. Now this truth is unique in itself. In that although... All men who are born will die. None of us are going to escape death. It's going to happen. But yet men are born to live. And men seek purpose in living rather than in dying, specifically. In other words, when we are looking at those who are born into the world, our thoughts are not, how are they going to die? Our thoughts are, what are, the, what are their lives going to be like? You know, how is their life going to develop? And, but Jesus came for the sole purpose of dying. Now, he lived a life, obviously. But he was intentionally looking forward to the cross. He had his focus set. And his perspective was such that he came to do the will of the Father at all costs, which would cost him everything. So while Jesus lived a sinless life in perfect submission and obedience to the Heavenly Father, pleasing the Father in all that He did, the Father was pleased to sacrifice His Son that He might make peace with sinful men. Now this was the mission of the Lord Jesus. So while men are born that they might live, Jesus was born that He might die. That is unique in and of itself. Verse 20 goes on to say, By Him, to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. To reconcile is to remove hostility. Again, I've told you this many times, but theologically speaking, it's important to understand the distinctives here. Because when you think of reconciliation, that's not the same thing as salvation or redemption. It's not the same thing as justification. It's not the same thing as glorification. They're not the same things. Now, they're all part of the same work, but they are different and distinct even in their definitions. And so when we think of reconciliation, this was the process in which God removed the hostility that was present between God and men, and he did so through exacting his wrath upon his son, upon the flesh of his son, as a man. So this is how the hostility was taken away. It's also important that we recognize the preposition by is used twice in this verse, and it was God the Father who did the work, but he accomplished it by his son, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. So weeks ago I explained to you regarding Paul's reference in this epistle to creation. When we talked about Christ is unique in his authority or in his power and how that he created the worlds and all things that are exist because he spoke them into being and they were created by him and they exist because of him. And we saw as well that each person of the God had a, had a place in God's work in creation. So also each person of the God has a place in God's redemptive work. Again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. We know the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we know that you see in this the name that's used and, and translated God for us in the English. In the beginning, God is the Hebrew name or title Elohim, which is plural in number, which is important because it represents more than just a singular being there. But yet he is singular, but yet he's the triune God. And so you find the Godhead present. It's not God's, it is Elohim God, but yet it is plural in its number, the noun is. And so we recognize then that it's not just referring to uh, multiple gods, nor is it referring to one individual being alone all by himself, but rather it is God who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we know that as well because the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And we also know that because the Scriptures clearly teach us John 1, Romans 1, Hebrews 1, and so on and so forth, Colossians 1, that all things were created by Jesus Christ. He is the creator. And so we see him present in creation. So in creation, here's what we understand. God the Father is the divine designer. He is the divine architect of all that is created. God had, had, the Father was the one who was the divine architect in this. God the Son is the one who implemented the divine plan of God the Father, speaking it into existence, while God the Spirit moved or provided order to that which God the Father ordained and God the Son created. So you find the Godhead present. But in redemption, the same is also true. Remember, Paul uses the example of creation for a greater purpose of explaining to us the importance and significance of redemption and the power of God in that. So in redemption, God the Father purposed redemption. It was his purpose and plan. God the Son implemented the Father's plan through his sacrificial atonement. And God the Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ, perfects his redemption in us. And we see this truth of the Godhead in redemption throughout the Scriptures. In his epistle of Romans, Paul explained how it was God the Father who made peace with man by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is reconciliation. So look with me in Romans 3, 24 through 26. And I'm going to break this down for you so you see who's being spoken of that you not misunderstand it. It says, we, he says, being justified. He's talking about we the redeemed who have been or are being justified freely by his, the Father's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God the Father has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his, Jesus' blood, to declare his, the Father's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God the Father. To declare, I say at this time, his, the Father's righteousness, that he, God the Father, might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So it was God the Father who slew his son that he, the Father, might provide peace for us and remain just in doing so. God the Father has justified us. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has sanctified us and positionally already glorified us as well, but we will experience that of being glorified 
by his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 21 and 22. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The purpose of Jesus, his mission, it is unique in that he was sent to make peace by removing the hostility that existed between fallen man, sinful man, and the only holy, righteous God through the death of his flesh, that is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Paul spoke to this in a verse in Romans, to which I've often referred in Romans 8, actually two verses, 3 and 4. Paul wrote, for what the law could not do. Now, what is the law? Let us remember. Does anyone remember what the law is? And don't say Decalogue. Don't say Ten Commandments. Yes, that's the law. But, but what is the law? What, is the, what does the word law represent? It is. The, it, the law is not just a list of rules or do's and don'ts, though many would see it that way. And it, Paul does define it as being our schoolmaster, that which points us to Christ. But how does it do that? Here's why. The law is the declaration of God's righteousness. God is saying, I am righteous, I am holy, and I require this, and I will accept nothing less than this. Hence, all men are already condemned. Why? Because we do not measure up to the righteousness of God. We are disqualified by Adam, already sinful, and we were shaped in iniquity and sinned by mother conceived me, David said. And then we also understand that we are guilty of actual sins, that we commit sins, and so we are guilty of that as well, which unqualifies us. So we do not measure up to the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the very personified righteousness of God. He is the fulfillment of the righteousness of God the Father manifested in the flesh. He did no sin that was no sin in him. So what the law could not do, the declaration of God's righteousness, it says in that it was weak through the flesh. The law was not weak. In fact, let me prove to you the law is not weak, and that's not what this verse is saying. The law has no problem condemning us, does it? Therefore, it is not weak. The law is perfectly capable of doing exactly what God sent it to do. Again, I remind you of this. I've told you this many times. But when God gave the Decalogue, and by the way, the law existed prior to the Ten Commandments. That is a summarization of the law of God. In fact, let me go back to this. If you recall with me, uh, whenever Jesus was questioned and the question was asked to him and said, which is the greatest of the commandments? And what did Jesus say? He said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, wait a minute. Do you, know, do you realize what Jesus just did in those two commandments? He just summarized the Ten Commandments. The first portion is loving God and your, your response to God as, as, as being God who he is. And the second part, remember, we're told, love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, and mind. Remember? But we're also told that we are not to covet our neighbor's House, wife, so on and so forth. We're not to bear false witness. All that is not about God in us. It's about us and other men. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord thy God, the first, love the Lord thy God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself, he's not giving two separate commandments. He's saying this is the law of God. First we love God, then we love others. That's what he is saying. And so the command is given in such a form. But might I remind you, just as Jesus summarized the Decalogue in those two statements, so it is that God is summarizing his entire law within the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. It's not the entirety of God's law, but it's summarized therein. And so if you recall, in, on Mount Sinai, when God gave Moses the law and he carved it out of stone, you recall God did that. 
and he gave Moses the tablets. Moses comes down from the mountain having been up there for days, and he comes down, and what are the people doing? They are committed, committing all types of immorality. They are worshiping, they're in idolatry, worshiping a, a golden calf that they convinced Aaron to make for them. And then they are saying something along these lines. Oh, worship this calf, for these are the gods who delivered you out of Egypt. They just made these gods, and these are the ones that delivered them? How foolish. Yeah, that's exa- exactly what they did. But remember what Moses did. And I believe God ordained this to be for this very purpose. The law comes down to Mo- with Moses. Moses sees the people, he hears the people, and sees their ungodliness. He's just been with God, receiving the Ten Commandments. His face is aglow, and all the people are down there now breaking the commandments of God. So what does Moses do? He breaks the tablets. The point being this, before the people ever received the Word of God or the commands of God or the law of God, they had already broken the law of God. Before you ever become aware of God's law, consciously speaking, you've already been guilty of breaking it. We are guilty, and the law has no problem condemning us. So let's go back to Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law is not weak, it's the flesh that is weak and cannot live up to the law. God, the Father, sending his own Son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Again, listen, please. This was the eternal purpose of God that Christ would be manifested in the flesh because the flesh is the problem. And there had to be an offering, a sacrifice sufficient. Verse 4 tells us the purpose of all of this. So that or that the righteousness of the law, the righteousness of the law, the law is righteous, might be fulfilled in us. And this is, again, descriptive, not prescriptive. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So he's not saying, oh, as long as you walk after the spirit, not the flesh. No, he's saying those in whom God's law of righteousness is fulfilled will not follow after the flesh, but they will follow after the spirit. The problem was the sinful flesh of man. So God the Father sent his son while sinless. He took on the form of sinful flesh that he, Jesus, might die in the flesh. So through his sacrifice, now we have received his righteousness imputed unto us who were unrighteous. It's through such sacrifice of Jesus as orchestrated by God the Father that we are now declared righteous. We are declared holy and without blame before God the Father. So we see that the purpose of Jesus is unique. He's unique in his purpose. There is no other purpose to compare to that of the purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he humbled himself. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross as he submitted himself to the purpose of the Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is truly unique. He is unique in his being. He is the image of the invisible God. He is unique in his authority. All things were created by him and are sustained by him. He is unique in his status. He is preeminent before and above all. And he is unique in his purpose. He perfectly fulfilled the redemptive purpose of the Heavenly Father. Our Lord Jesus fulfilled the eternal purpose of God the Father. He accomplished what no other could do. He is unique truly in his purpose. Ephesians 3, 9 through 12, Paul explained that God had called him to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church 
the manifold wisdom of God, Paul then says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Again, when you see by the faith of him, you might understand it to say by the faithfulness of him. It's because of his faithfulness, his unique person, authority, status, position, his power, his preeminence, and his purpose. By his faithfulness, and that he and he alone is unique and able to do that which he faithfully did, that we now have a relationship with God the Father. He hath made us meet. So now let's go back to verse 12, and I'm finished, and read together with me, if you will. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. We should be giving thanks unto the Father. As we see what Paul describes as the unique Jesus, we should be all the more grateful in recognizing that he accomplished that which we could never accomplish. All because of who he is. He has been able to do what he has done. I'll summarize the last four weeks that I've been with you with this one statement which really sums everything up. And I could have said this, but think of all you'd have missed out on had I just said this. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it all amounts to right there. Let's stand together in prayer. Father,